1: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com
2: slash people today.
3: Hi, regular listeners, you may have spotted that we've changed our name. It's now Honey & Co. The Food Sessions.
4: So if you hear this sound, it's just us making dinner.
3: Well... That, and the fact that we're not allowed to use our old title anymore.
4: It's just been a bit of a thing, but don't worry about it.
3: We hope you enjoy the show. Hi, I'm Sarit Becker.
4: I'm Itamar Sulevich. Together we run a couple of Middle Eastern restaurants in London.
3: And we also do our fair share of food writing. And welcome to Series 6 of Honey & Co series of talks we host in our little deli honey and spice on warren street we talk to chefs and cookbook writers and waiters and managers and people we admire from the world of food
4: this season we got to meet some incredible people we've cooked their food we've learned so much we are so excited to share this with you i hope you enjoy as much as we did
3: Today we have a very special edition for you. First of all, we're not recording it in our delhi, we're recording it in Store X in the centre of London, which is very exciting to us. We have a much bigger crowd than usual, but we also have a very big celebrity with us. We'll be talking to Sandor Katz. He is the king of fermentation. We talked to him about cooking in a commune in the early days. We talked about how to start your process of fermentation. If you listen up, you can hear about all his new experimentations with koji, with molding up a bit of tofu, everything that sounds disgusting but is absolutely delicious. Listen up, hope you enjoy and get your jars ready. I got it. So we're here tonight as part of the Urban Food Fortnight, and we're in Storex in London. And what we want to do is hopefully start from the beginning, which is going back a bit. But you weren't a chef or in restaurants. You were in politics.
1: I had a a career in municipal government in New York City and... uh, well, I mean, in 1987, 88, 89, uh, I was trying to—I uh, I was running an organization trying to stop a New York City real estate developer named Donald Trump from <laughs> uh, from 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 building a like a series of 70-story buildings along the Hudson River. So
3: you are more success, successful fermenter <laughs> than you are a politician. Yeah? Yeah.
4: Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. It's <laughs> a bit harsh. <laughs> she didn't do very well on that. What can I
3: do? <laughs> she's not,
1: she's well, not well. We we actually you, know. We actually, <laughs> we, we we actually did well. succeed of yeah, scaling just, down the of of 70 story buildings yeah. You know, he he found other venues. Uh,
4: yeah.
3: of a little bit of a
1: uh, yeah, sure. In um, in 1992, uh, uh, I, w- I, I, I traveled with some friends to New Orleans, and just very randomly in New Orleans, I met some people who lived in a community in Tennessee, and I was very intrigued by them and their tales of uh, living off the grid with a herd of goats. And uh, I went and visited, and a year later I found myself living in rural Tennessee as part of this commune, and uh, my, my work in the community mostly was gardening, which was something I was very, very interested in, but but very inexperienced at, and cooking food for people. It was a community of about 20 people, and I've always loved to cook. But um, you know, suddenly I had a lar- much larger group than I had ever had to. To cook And, um, you know, it was really in the intersection of the garden and the kitchen that I first got interested in fermentation.
4: How did that door open?
1: Well, I mean, you know, I grew up in New York City and I was such a naive city kid that I had never really thought about the, uh, the, the rhythms of agricultural production. And so the first year I was in the garden, it was a little bit of a surprise to me that all of the cabbages were ready at about the same time. And so, uh, you know, it's not like there were that many cabbages, but it was, you know, a nice row of 16 or 20 cabbages. And, you know, I thought to myself, what are we going to do with these? Uh, uh, I'd better learn how to make sauerkraut. I, I knew that I loved sauerkraut. I grew up eating pickles. I mean, I, like, I, I loved pickles. They were one of my favorite foods as a kid. So, um, you know, when I had this uh, 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 surplus of, of cabbage, I, I figured I'd better investigate how to make sauerkraut. And, you know, I, I looked in, you know, the most commonly found, Cookbook in uh, American Kitchens, which is The Joy of Cooking. I found a recipe for sauerkraut in The jo- Joy of Cooking. Uh, it was deceptively simple. I made some sauerkraut. That sauerkraut was incredibly delicious, and it just uh Made me want to investigate fermentation further. We we had we had a supply of goat's milk. I decided to figure out how to make yogurt. There were lots of plums in the summertime. I decided to learn how to make uh, country wine, and uh, you know, pretty quickly, I I just got obsessed with all things fermented and started looking in you know, cookbooks from culinary traditions around the world to find out about. Um, miso and tempeh. Because I was cooking for a large group of people, there were always people to you know, try the things that I made, give me feedback tease me
3: um. <laughs> I'm quite interested in this community that you're saying you, you lived in kind of a group of people but did you cook every meal together was it part of like do you have a routine about it or was yeah. it just what happened we, we,
1: we had dinners together I mean the the other meals I mean we shared one kitchen and one refrigerator but um, you yeah, know the other meals were a little bit more um, uh, improvisational catches catch can
3: did you discover you were HIV positive then or later? Or, or? No,
1: no, before so, before so. yeah. I mean, that was, that was. I would say, part of the context for what made me ready to make such a big change in my life.
3: Were you treating food as a way
1: hmm.
3: to kind of treat yourself as well, in a, you know, to make yourself feel good, or, mm. or you don't think there was a correlation back then? No, no, no,
1: there, there was definitely a correlation. You know, in 1991, when I tested HIV positive, there were no effective treatments, and... Um, Uh, You know, I wouldn't say I was fatalistic about it, but but by then I was no longer working for the community-based organization. I was working in municipal government and... uh You know, I I just kind of realized if I have a limited time frame, this isn't necessarily how I want to be spending my time. Uh, I noticed how being as busy as that work was making me, was making me feel exhausted most of the time. You know, I just got interested in holistic healing, thinking more about, you know, diet and how food was making me feel, organic food. Um, One of the big appeals of this community was having spring water. So, you know, I definitely moved down there with the idea that, oh, getting involved in my own food, uh, eating fresh organic food, drinking fresh spring water, like these are all things that, you know, maybe will help me stay healthier longer.
3: Did you feel an effect to it or you think?
1: There's always more context. Um, I'd gotten interested in live fermented foods and, and, and eating them as a health practice long before I learned how to ferment anything. So in my life in New York, even prior to testing HIV positive, I'd gotten very interested in, I'd been following a macrobiotic diet, uh, a macrobiotic diet places a great emphasis on the digestive benefit of pickles and other live ferments. I noticed that the pickles that I had loved my entire life, that whenever I would eat them, I could feel the salivary glands under my tongue squirting out saliva, and I began to associate them in a very tangible way with getting my digestive juices flowing. You know, I mean, I feel like I, I mean, I stayed healthy for a while. I mean, I, 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 when, when the um, uh, anti-retroviral treatments first came out. Um, you know, I, I had no intention of going on them as long as I was feeling good. But then, you know, I had a health crisis, uh, 1999, 2000, and um, you know, when I when I saw myself kind of spiraling downwards, I decided to you know try these medications that I had seen uh, uh, sort of reverse the course of the disease in in, in a few of my friends. And uh, you know, I've, I've been on antiretroviral retroviral drugs for the last. 20 years now.
3: You look amazing, aren't you? <laughs> you do. You know? um, and, you know, in the, in, the, in the
1: original edition of Wild Fermentation, I made this very vague statement in my biography on the back of the book. I said something like fermented foods have been an important part of my healing. And I, and I do feel like, you know, nutrition and fermented foods in particular have have had a role in, in helping me stay healthy and uh, maintaining good digestion, you know, but, uh, you know, I, I realized that that, that that really suggested to a lot of people that um, uh, there was some, you know, sort of specific action of the fermented foods on HIV, and, uh, you know, I, I kept hearing people introduce me as, like, you know, the man who cured HIV with uh, fermented foods, and, you know, I try to be really clear with people now that, like, you know, like, I think that they have the potential to improve people's digestive processes, improve people's overall immune function, but, you know, I mean, they are not a specific treatment for, you know, HIV or, you know, most other disease processes.
4: You know, the the science on, on gut bacteria, it's kind of a buzzword lately of what we should be eating or what we shouldn't be eating and, you know, what is actually happening there. The actual science on it is very early stages.
1: You know, this is one of the reasons why so many people are getting interested in fermentation at the present time, is that, you know, sort of science is recognizing in a very clear way how important bacteria are. Now, you know, we don't have, like, such a full understanding of, you know, what the interaction is between the bacteria we ingest and the bacteria already in, in residence in our intestines. But, I mean, there is a broad understanding of the importance of bacteria and that we could not possibly survive without bacteria. Each healthy human body is host to something like, you know, a trillion bacteria. They outnumber our bodily cells 10 to 1. They enable us to digest food and assimilate nutrients. What we call our immune system is mostly done by them. And, I mean, science has just been learning that, you know... Every system of our bodies, including our brain chemistry, is regulated by uh, a gut bacteria, and so I think that that's a really uh, a dramatic departure from what you know. Those of us who grew up in the 20th century ever heard about bacteria, about how dangerous they are, how uh, much they need to be avoided, and um, you know, having this whole arsenal of chemicals that could destroy them whenever we encountered them. So you know, what's less developed is um, what do we do about that? How do we um, increase and restore biodiversity? How do we use probiotics as targeted therapy for, you know, different kinds of health problems?
3: Can you tell us a bit about actual fermentation? For What is it, actually?
1: Um, okay, I would say, broadly speaking, fermentation is the transformative action of microorganisms. You know, People uh, in every part of the world have been fermenting uh, for longer than we have recorded history. And only in the last 150 years have we begun to you know, know of the specific presence of bacteria. So number one, you do not need to be a microbiologist and have a microscope in order to ferment food. You know, none of the people for the you know first thousands of years that human cultures were fermenting had that knowledge. Um, Microbiology has illuminated fermentation in all kinds of interesting ways, but one of them is the 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 understanding that you know everything we eat, all of the plants and all of the animal products that comprise our food, are populated by these elaborate communities of microorganisms. And you know, some of these organisms organisms would be associated with food spoil. Some of these organisms might be associated with food poisoning, but by basically uh, uh, guiding which organisms are going to grow. And that's really what fermenta- the practice of fermentation is, is uh, manipulating environmental conditions in ways that encourage the growth of certain organisms and simultaneously discourage the growth of other organisms. And so you know, rather than your food decomposing into a disgusting ugly mess that nobody would ever want to put into their mouths, we, we improve the food in some way. We, we, possibly produce alcohol, we um, make foods more stable for for preservation, we make foods more easily digestible, we make nutrients more bioavailable, we remove toxic compounds from foods, and, and ultimately, we make foods more delicious. Um, and so, you know, there's always uh, practical benefits that, 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 that elevate the food as a result of this microbial action.
4: It is a natural process, and it, it is... Um naturally occurring. I think human intervention is kind of more harnessing and and directing bacteria to interact with food in a certain way, so it's useful for us, which is, in a way, cooking, in the sense that it transforms food, but also, you know, it's not as obvious to the naked eye, so to learn it is a lot of trial and error. When you decided, oh, I want to do more of that, So do you just have, like, a shed with all sorts of bubbling things and you just try them every so often. On a
1: sure, sure, sure. I mean, I, you know, I did a lot of experimentation, but <laughs> yeah. I, I wouldn't say that, you know, I was just completely experimenting. I mean, sure, we can imagine that our ancestors, uh, uh, you know, many hundreds and in most cases thousands of years ago, um, you know, sort of like learned through observation and, and trial and error. But, you know, I had the benefit of being able to look in books and, 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 and really learn from books. And books can only show you so much. And, you know, ultimately you have to learn, like, you know, what what does it smell like? What does it taste like? How do I evaluate, you know, when something is, is ready? How long you ferment it? Um, you know, when is it too warm? When is it too cold? Things like that. But, um, you know, certainly I did a lot of consulting of, of, of books as, as, as I was learning. So I wasn't, um, you know, I wasn't just experimenting out of my imagination for the most part. I was experimenting, you know, sort of guided by the wisdom of ancestors and cultural traditions all around the world.
3: As a child, I have memories of, especially in the Middle East, we grow up, there's all these like plastic bottles that have like cucumbers that you put through the hole and basically they just have a a salt solution on them or olives or all of these things. Uh, Do you have like childhood memories that in hindsight you think, oh, that was fermenting, but I never thought about it that way? So what would be?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, pickles. Um, um, you know, as a kid, I loved pickles. And, um, I mean, you know, the word pickle sometimes confuses people. Pickle covers a lot of ground. A pickle is anything preserved in an acidic medium. If you go to contemporary supermarkets, mostly you're going to find uh, uh, vegetables or sometimes other things that have had a hot vinegar solution poured over them. And that's definitely a pickle. But the pickles that I grew up with um, um, are the sort of Eastern European style of fermented cucumbers. Uh, in New York City, they, we knew them as sour pickles. Uh, in the rest of the U.S., they're known as kosher dills. Um, I never knew that they were they were fermented. I, I, it's not like I was watching a grandparent make them. Um, you know, we, we would buy them at a local delicatessen, but um, I mean, I just loved them. And um, you know, what I later realized is that flavor that I loved is the flavor of lactic acid produced by a fermentation by lactic acid bacteria, which is a completely different flavor from acetic acid. The vinegar that's used in, you know, most contemporary pickles that you would find at a supermarket.
0: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host.
3: Since you wrote the book, actually you've pretty much been on this kind of long book tour. Yeah,
1: yeah. My book tour never quite ended. Yeah.
3: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Almost twenty year book tour, yeah. So tell us a bit kind of countries and them most kind of famous thing,
1: you know? Well, I mean, you know, I guess the thing I I would just emphasize is, you know, fermentation is everywhere. There's an inevitability to microbial transformation of our food, and culinary traditions in every part of the world have used this. The other day in Wales, I met this incredible woman from Greenland who was telling me about, you know, some of the very interesting um, foods of Greenland that have enabled people to survive in that harsh uh, uh, environment. But, you know, people people everywhere harness uh, uh, fermentation in different ways. And, um, you know, my education on fermentation is, uh, is, is ongoing. I mean, fermentation is not a, uh, like, a finite practice that, like, you know, anybody, could ever, you know, comprehensively know. Last year I had a um, a, a Thai American student uh, show up with these uh, uh, short ribs um, um in a plastic bag with a paste of rice and garlic and uh, uh salt over them that he had started fermenting at home and then you know took on the airplane when he came down to my place and we fermented <laughs> them for fire. we fermented <laughs> them for four or five days and it's called Nam and then we then we cooked them and you know these just like incredibly delicious you know deep complex flavored ribs fermented in this in this Thai style so i mean i'm just always learning from you know the places that I visit from um, you know students of mine that you know whose families come from different parts of the world and and introduce me to um, processes that I wasn't aware of before you know another thing that I've been kind of obsessed with is um, uh, fermenting tofu and uh, you know I, I I mean I've only really glimpsed it but you know from from you know my my glimpses I mean I dare say that um you know fermented tofu in China is as varied as cheese in Europe um I mean there's just like incredible incredible you know variety you know some of them are mild some of them are more uh, uh extreme the textures are 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 varied the seasoning is varied um Taiwanese uh, woman who lives here in London who came to a a workshop in the U.S. that that I did, um, you know, brought me all of this sort of like fungal starter for what's called mao tofu, which is like tofu with a sort of a hairy mold growing on it. That's that's like the first step of most of the fermented tofu. So that's been enabling me to, um, you know, experiment a lot uh, uh, in this uh, interesting realm of, of fermented tofu. Are we going to talk about NATO or? I was gonna, <laughs> gonna, well. This is where I'm trying
3: to lead to. I'm trying to lead to if there's anything you don't like, because I was saying before. For me, natto is just Japanese fermented uh, soybeans, and they're kind of really slimy. I don't know if you, any of you have eaten them, but you pick them up, and they kind of go into this string of slime. And to me, that is really a texture I can't abide, but you love them. Yeah. Is it? <laughs> well, I mean,
1: I, I should say I didn't love it the first time I tasted it, you know, I, but I challenge myself. Like, whenever, if, I, if I taste something and, I, and, and my immediate reaction is aversion, but then I see other people who are taking great pleasure in it, I mean, I just always challenge myself to, to, to try it again. And, I mean, as it, has, as it has turned out, I mean, I crave natto. Natto is, like, is so incredibly delicious. Everybody's different. <laughs> um, uh. But is there
3: something you don't like at all? Any foods, they don't have to be fermented. I'm quite interested if you have like a very, very broad palate. Well, okay,
1: I I am, I I continue to challenge myself to try liver. Like I I just, I I just have never, I just have never loved liver. And, you know, there's something about the texture of liver I find very off-putting. But I keep trying it and, um, you know, like some preparations of liver I find much more um, uh, enticing than others. I didn't like olives until I was about 40 years old. Really? Yeah. So, um, you know, I don't know why. I mean, it, I mean it's funny because now I love them, but there was something about, like, the texture of green olives in particular that I always found off-putting as a young person. And then, I, I don't know, once I, once I just sort of, like, moved through it, now, now I love olives.
4: Maybe we can work through your not, uh Well, I'm taking on the challenge
3: of the of the liver. <laughs> I want to ma- I want to cook him liver that he's gonna you like. You know, our, it's always, I always like a challenge.
1: But but in general, I mean, like I, I love food and I love virtually you know all food that that, that I try. I mean, yeah. You know, sometimes someone cooks something that's terrible, but um, <laughs> uh, um, uh, you know, there's no there's no food other than that categorically that I would say that I don't like.
3: So you wrote the first book in 2003. And then you wrote it. I oh, well, actually,
1: wrote it in 2001, yeah. and uh, and it was published in 2003.
3: Oh, okay. And this is a revised version of that one.
1: Yeah, yeah. So this this, this is a 2016 revision of uh, Wild Fermentation, my original uh, uh, 2003 book. And then um, uh, uh, this one, The Art of Fermentation, uh, was published in 2012, and uh, it's it's a much it's a much bigger, more uh, uh, thorough book.
3: So you started in 2003, you were doing certain things. Did anything change substantially?
1: Um, My understanding. (laughs) I mean, that's the only thing that changed. I I mean, fermentation didn't change. But, you know, my my first experiences with fermentation were in 1993, Eight years later, I wrote the first iteration of Wild Fermentation. Wild Fermentation opened the door for, I mean, you know, we call it a book tour, but like, you know, I, I, I teach. I, I, I teach people about fermentation. And if any of you are teachers, you know, you, you know, you learn from your students. You learn to be a better teacher. You, um, you know, learn how to explain things more clearly. You learn what the common misunderstandings are. My interactions with people talking about fermentation crystallized certain things, made me realize, you know, certain things that I had underemphasized in the original uh, uh, book maybe realized things I I needed to say um, you know as I got feedback from people working with the recipes I, I realized you know some of the recipes maybe were um, uh, uh, imperfect in certain ways and could be improved you know any book is like a slice in time and it's you know yeah. what you were thinking what you were feeling what you what your understanding of things was a, at that moment and you know if you're if you're if your learning is ongoing then at some point you look at something Something you wrote, and you cringe a little bit, or you know, you think like, "Wow, I could have said that a lot better," or you know, I, I mean, okay. So there's a whole category. So so everybody's heard of kombucha. Here, I'm drinking a little kombucha. It's there, but kombucha is part of a much like broader category now that I would I would recognize of like uh, lightly fermented beverages. And when I wrote wild fermentation originally, I didn't even recognize that as a category. And for some inexplicable reason, I had kombucha in the grain chapter. Um, I had ginger beer in the wine chapter. I had sweet potato fly in the dairy chapter, and um, you know, at some point, I realized like all these beverages and other ones I came to learn about are, are are really you know representative of this other group of ferments that I hadn't even conceptualized when I when I wrote the original book. So you know, there's a there, it's just organized a little bit differently, and yeah. I think there, there are
4: certainly in London two or three restaurants that I think of about that center their cooking around that. And, you know, certainly a lot of chefs and, you know, diners are very aware and very awake to that. How 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 do you see it, you know? From
1: well, I mean, you know, I would say since about 2012, you know, every year various like, you know, uh, 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 followers of trends in food have declared that fermentation was a you know, hot new trend in food. And I, you know, I mean, I, obviously I, I, I can see that there is um, growing awareness and, and interest in fermentation. But, you know, if you think about the major products of fermentation, you know did bread suddenly get popular in two thousand and twelve? Did cheese suddenly get popular in two thousand and twelve? Did wine and beer suddenly get popular in two thousand and twelve? Did cured meats and vinegar and soy sauce and uh, uh, fish sauce suddenly get popular in two thousand and twelve and chocolate so I mean I think that you know the the many of the products of fermentation have enjoyed enduring popularity throughout history. And, um, you know, they were, um, you know, just as popular in our great grandparents' time as, as, as they are now. Um, you know, I, I think that two big things shifted. You know, number one is awareness that bacteria are not our enemies, that we need bacteria and that, you know, we need strategies to um, restore biodiversity in the gut uh, uh, for our continued well-being. And so, you know, that got a lot of people thinking about bacteria. I would say that the other thing is that you know, one of the, you know, narratives of the 20th century and going back even further is just people getting more and more distanced from their food and, you know, the processes by which food is created, whether it's agriculture and how food is grown or all the processes that we use to transform the raw products of agriculture into the foods that we actually love to, love to eat, were just, have just been like a mystery for people. And, and you know, I think largely if I, if I think about like women of my, you know, grand mother and mother's generation like you know they felt like that was that was liberation that they didn't have to like think about those things and I would say like you know for people in my generation and and younger people you know there's been this awareness that like oh okay well convenience is nice but you know look how many people are getting sick as a result of the food that we're eating look how much waste there is Uh, look how much environmental destruction there is from the uh, uh, methods of food mass production and people have just started you know, wanting to know where their food comes from or and how it's produced. And, you know, once you start interrogating your food and asking questions like that, fermentation is part of the answer. And, and you know, and there's a lot of innovation too. I don't mean to suggest that all the fermentation is traditional. I mean, I don't think anyone's really invented any new fermented food. Foods or beverages for hundreds and possibly thousands of years, but there's a huge amount of like cross-pollination going on right now, and people taking you know processes that are uh, uh, traditionally applied to you know some particular you know type of ingredient and uh, applying it to different kinds of ingredients. I think a great example of this would be koji. Koji is the Japanese name for rice or barley or soybeans grown with this fungus, Aspergillus oryzae, and it's the um, it's the first step of making sake, making miso, making soy sauce, making amazake, like a really broad range of traditional Japanese foods. And there there are analogous uh, uh, fungi in use uh, uh, really all, all across Asia. But you know, in the last decade, you know, chefs are you know growing koji on meat and curing meat with koji, and there's this uh, uh, explosion in Japan of uh, shio koji, which is uh, 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 koji water and salt fermented together for a week or 10 days and then you can use that to marinate vegetables, marinate fish and these enzymes in the koji break down proteins, break down fats, break down carbohydrates and uh, you know it can really be, it it can really like make things delicious and so you know there's a a lot of exciting uh, uh, cross fertilization that's going on in the world of fermentation right now.
3: And do you think if someone were to start at home, someone, say, has got an allotment and a whole glut of...
1: Cabbages, say. Cabbages.
3: No, courgettes. Cabbages is the easiest one. You put yeah. salt in, they're good. But a bit more challenging courgettes, which are kind of maybe a bit more slimy or stuff like that. How, how do you start? Like, what's, what's your basic kit at home?
1: Well, I mean, because my gateway into fermentation was fermenting vegetables, I mean, that's typically what I recommend for other people. And, I mean, another reason for this is, like... Because we've had all of this indoctrination that bacteria are so dangerous, a lot of people like, project all of their anxiety about bacteria onto the process of fermentation. And you know, so even you know, with a, you know, let's say you're making sauerkraut, you have this jar of shredded salted cabbage, and you're looking at it and you're thinking like, how do I know that there are good bacteria growing in here and not some dangerous bacteria that might you know, make my children sick or even kill somebody? You know, to the degree that people might be projecting anxiety like that onto the process of fermentation, according to the United States Department of Agriculture, they cannot find one single documented case anywhere in the world of food poisoning or illness from fermented vegetables. So, you know, I feel like I can really, like, assuage people's fears and, um, you know, just encourage them to start with fermenting vegetables and, you know, nothing bad is going to happen because nothing bad ever happens. You know, there's just, there's no case history anywhere in the world. It's about as safe as food gets. I mean, statistically, fermented vegetables are much, much safer than raw vegetables. And I hope nobody is avoiding raw vegetables, you know, just because every, you know, year or two, we we read about an outbreak of salmonella or E. coli uh, uh, traced to, to, to raw vegetables. But if you took vegetables that had had, you know, some sort of incidental exposure like that and fermented them, the lactic acid will always dominate, or the lactic acid Bacteria will always dominate, and as they produce lactic acid, it, it and 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 the environment acidifies. It would just kill those incidental bacteria. So I like to encourage people to start with fermenting vegetables, just because it's safe, it's easy, it's delicious, it's supportive of good health. And then you know from there, you know where wherever you're interested, you know you can make you can make yogurt, you can make country wine, you can make kombucha, uh, you could make salami, um, you know whatever what, 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 whatever people are interested in. And you know my, I mean my main interest is just you know providing the clear information to uh, help people feel confident to, um, you know, experiment with these processes.
3: If you're kind of trying to experiment with these funguses and everything that, like you're saying, there's this kind of cross thing with with Japanese or very Asian cultures and stuff like that, how do you get hold of them? Because these are introduced in. So...
1: Well, I mean, okay, so conceptually we, we, we have to recognize that like, all of the, these things started as a, a wild fermentation. Wild fermentation just means uh, a fermentation based on the organisms that are present on the food that you are fermenting. I mean in Japan just like in the UK and in the US and everywhere else like you know nobody was isolating individual microorganisms uh, until the very end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century so I mean definitely there are techniques for growing koji using wild fermentation. I wouldn't recommend them for people who have never grown koji, because how would you possibly know if you have the right thing growing? So, um, you know, in our globalized world, it's actually really quite easy to obtain these food cultures. Uh, if you look up koji starter on the internet, um, you know, it might cost you, you know, 20, 20 pounds to, you know, have some mail to your home, and you could make your own koji. And, you know, in my books, I, I, I provide a little bit of descriptive information and steer people to uh, more in-depth resources you know if they were to want to experiment with like a wild fermentation of koji but all these fermented foods and beverages predate the you know the 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 technology of 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 pure culture starters and in the case of koji um, you know once you smell fresh koji growing you would never mistake it for anything else because it has just such a distinctive beautiful aroma have you had any massive catastrophes? Oh sure, sure. I mean, um, you know, if you if you experiment a lot, you'll you'll always have um, uh, uh, catastrophes. I mean, I mean, my worst catastrophes have been with sauerkraut when I have failed to protect my crocks of sauerkraut from flies and if you have flies land on the surface of your sauerkraut and lay their eggs then wow. you know you will find maggots crawling out of your sauerkraut um, <laughs> and so um, sure that's a so I've, yeah. i you know i i've, I've had that experience uh, certainly more than once my first experiments with like trying to grow this hairy mold on tofu that I was talking about earlier uh, before um, uh, my friend my friend Powell brought me a starter for it the, the directions all say like put it on rice straw well I don't, you know, I don't know where to find rice straw uh, but in the area where I live there's lots of wheat straw and rye straw so I kept trying it on wheat straw and rye straw and I kept getting these bright colored orange and red molds <laughs> growing on the tofu rather than the you know hairy, white molds that I saw in China. You know, I threw those away. Like, don't eat foods with bright, colored molds <laughs> growing <laughs> off of them. Rule of thumb, it's
4: right, it talks back at you,
1: don't
3: eat it. So do you open a jar? And let the air out, or do you keep it closed?
1: Mm, It depends a little bit what we're talking about. Uh, If we're talking about fermenting vegetables, I I, I certainly let the carbon dioxide out, although mostly I work with crocs where able to uh, off-gas on their own. But, you know, sometimes I'm trying to carbonate things. I I mean, I I, I enjoy this realm of lightly fermented beverages, and sometimes I try to carbonate them. And um, so if you keep on opening it up and letting it out then you're letting your carbonation escape but it's a little bit of a balancing act because jars can explode you know once you have an actively fermenting beverage that still has fermentable sugar in it and you seal it in a in 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 a bottle you're potentially creating a a bomb so i mean i I often bottle them in plastic bottles or at least do one bottle in plastic so i have a little reference point and then i can squeeze it when i first fill the bottle it, it, it it yields to my squeezing and then as the fermentation proceeds and the pressure builds it resists more you know once it's really resisting squeezing then if I'm not going to drink it right away I move it into the fermentation slowing device I have in my kitchen which is the refrigerator (laughs) so what's a crow? A crock is a ceramic fermentation vessel. They come in all kinds of different shapes and sizes. The standard American style crock is just a simple cylindrical shape. I have some of those. Um, The Chinese crocks are sort of have a pot belly shape and usually a little um, uh, uh, like a channel that you fill with some water and then a lid that goes into that so they sort of have this airlock so that the carbon dioxide can get out but the oxygen can't get in. The Korean uh, uh, crocs are these sort of tall pot belly ones. I mean, you know, different cultural traditions have, have different kinds of crocs. Barrels are wonderful fermentation vessels. You know, I've filled big, like, 55-gallon-sized barrels, but then in some parts of the world I've seen beautiful, like, 3-liter, 5-liter little oak barrels that, that are for countertop use. Um, you know, usually for people who want to experiment I- I- at home, I think jars are perfect. Um, you know, like a liter-sized jar, if you're fermenting vegetables, can, can hold about a kilo of vegetables.
4: So we just uh, want to thank you so much for sitting with us and answering all our uh, fermented questions. <laughs> and we want to thank you guys for coming. And a big hand to Sandro Katz.
3: Thanks so much for listening to our latest episode. If you'd like to join one of the next talks, please follow us on social media at Honey & Co or go on our website, honeyandco.co.uk. With a huge thanks to Hester Kant for producing.
4: A special thanks to our own Louisa Cornford for her wonderful research.
3: And the music is by the lovely Alice Russell.
2: Thanks for listening. (gasps)